When I was 38 years old, I got invited to speak at my first church retreat. And I was so excited because I had read every single John Maxwell book on leadership that was in print at that point in my life. Uh, and I was convinced that if you just followed certain principles, you would get results. And uh, my friend that I had gone to college with had called me and said, Max, Max, you've got it together. In this church that you've started in Kentucky, they've got it together. My church, my church is lame. And so you're catching where I'm going with this. <laughs> my church is lame. Would you come and help us? Help us. My people in my church, they won't invite their neighbors. My people in my church, they don't care about lost people. Would you come and help? And I thought, absolutely. Oh my goodness, Chris, I would love to come. <clears throat> I would love to come and speak to your people and help them out. And I did, and I went. And you know, the whole retreat, they sat like this with their arms crossed and a scowl on their face. And you know what? Five years later, I had to call my friend Chris and I had to apologize for what I had done at that retreat. And I had to say, Chris, I'm so sorry. I came into that retreat and I had a giant chip on my shoulder and I came in there because I was going to be the savior and help them find the way and, and that's not how it works. <laughs> Will you forgive me? And he goes, well, it was a bomb, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'll forgive you. Contrast that with a couple of years ago, uh, I felt like God wanted me to share something with the Generations family, uh, something called prayer doodling. So I, I presented the message. I wasn't really happy with the sermon. And, and when I got to the sermon part, like I had a ton of jokes and no one laughed. Like they had to add a laugh track later for the sermon that goes online. It was that bad, no one laughed. And so the other thing is everybody kind of was staring at me that day like this. And I, and I was like, do I have a booger on the side of my cheek? Like, is it on this cheek? Like, where is it? Help me find. And so I, when that was done, you know, uh, preachers and comedians have something in common because we, we are always in front of a live group of people. And sometimes you have an idea and it kind of takes off out of the nest and it just soars. And then sometimes you have an idea and it takes off out of the nest and pff, it just lands right on the ground and it was thud. And so I thought that message clearly was one of those thuds. I put it in the drawer, closed the drawer and said, well, Max, at least you tried something new. And then three months later, Somebody comes up to me and they say, Max, I want you to see my prayer journal. You're what? Yeah, from that prayer doodling thing. That was amazing. Look at all, and God has been speaking to me. And I, and I was like, the one three months ago. Yeah, oh my goodness, God really moved. And then later that week, like three or four other people were talking to me about the prayer thing. I was like, wait a minute, you mean the dud sermon that was three months ago where you wouldn't laugh at anything and where I had a booger on the side of my face and all of that stuff, God moved in that? Oh, yeah. And so that's kind of how it is with God. It's the weirdest, weirdest thing. And resurrection power only comes through crucifixion weakness. This is what I want to share with you today. Resurrection power only comes through crucifixion weakness. Uh, it's why Christianity does really, really well when it's persecuted, when it's led by the poor and uneducated, when it's full of disenfranchised nobodies. It's why Christianity drifts and loses its power. 
when it's in a position to boss everyone around, when it's full and of dynamic and talented and well-connected people. It's why the church in America is struggling right now, guys. There are tons of churches. There are big ones and small ones, and there's all different kinds of flavors everywhere, and we've got a flavor. And there's tons of talent. Right now online, you don't need to listen to me. You can go online and hear some of the most dynamic, biblically infused uh, communicators that we've ever had. They're amazing. They're stellar. Uh, There are some churches, their bands are so uh, 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 big that they have their own roadies in a church. Um, And so you can go anywhere today in the United States and think, wow. But I want to share something I shared three weeks ago, and that's this. Because we use power the way the world uses power, the church in America has no power. Because we use power the way the world uses power, the church in America has no power. We should know this because of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We should know this from Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Was it Jesus preaching that turned the world upside down? I mean, is it, is it the case that it, he was such a good preacher? I mean, you know, people, when they talk, they're like, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, he was great. Andy Stanley, man, he can bring it. And I love me some Stephen Furtick from time to time, but man, Jesus, he was a communicator. Is that why he turned the world upside down? Was it his miracles? Was it the whole kapow? I can walk, glory, Captain Dan, you got legs. Was it that? Was it the kind of miracle thing? Is that what turned the world upside down? No, Jesus submitted to death on a cross and he died. Jesus, the corpse, could do nothing, but God raised him from the dead. Resurrection power only comes through crucifixion weakness. I wanna return and close out a teaching from 2 Corinthians, Second, and we're gonna be in 2 Corinthians chapter four today. Corinth was one of the top three cities in the Roman Empire by way of review. There was Rome, Alexandria, and Corinth. Whenever the emperor Nero would visit Sparta and Athens, he didn't stay in those pathetic towns. He stayed in Corinth. Corinth had a stadium that could seat 18,000 people. It had a theater that could seat 3,000 people. Corinth was the site of the Isthmus Games, and it was a sports and entertainment hub for the Roman Empire. It was also a new city. It didn't have the landed gentry. Uh, Landed gentry are the people who can say, the money and land that I have in my family belong to my daddy, belong to my daddy's daddy, belong to his daddy's daddy, and it's been, we've been rich for 17 generations. <laughs> Corinth wasn't like that. Everybody in Corinth who had money had new money. It's because they had earned it and made it. Uh, Corinth was a boom town. It was full of ex-slaves. The second largest segment of the population in Corinth were people who had been slaves who were upwardly mobile. Had a ton of people that were ex-military, guys who had served in the Roman legions, retired as officers, and lived like kings in Corinth. Um, This is what one scholar says of Corinth. Corinth was a freewheeling boom town filled with materialism, pride, and the self-confidence that comes with having made it in a new place with a new social identity. This could describe some places in the good old USA today, couldn't it? Right? Uh, In fact, Ray Stedman called first and second Corinthians back in the 1980s, first and second Californians. 
because he said it just, it speaks to where culture is. Well, of course, everybody's been leaving California, so really today in 2018, it would be first and second Nash Vegas. That's what everyone calls Nashville, because Nashville's the new boomtown in America. Everybody's moving to Nashville. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Corinth, Christians who weren't impressed with him, they weren't impressed with his teaching, they weren't impressed with his leadership, they wanted somebody with a wow factor, and Paul didn't have it. He was kind of a dud. And so that's where we pick up things in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not ourselves. We are jars of clay. The band got its name from this passage, right? And in the Roman Empire, clay jars were used to, to contain all kinds of things, everything from money, and you would put that money in the clay jar and you would bury it in a field, which is why Jesus tells the story that he does. In 2010 in England, some guy with a metal detector dug up a Roman era clay pot with 52,000 Roman era coins and it was just a foot beneath the surface. Kapow! So jars of clay, Paul is saying, I'm a clay pot, I'm nothing to look at. Some clay pots were used to hold trash, not treasure. So clay pots could be used for any number of things. Uh, if you had a uh, baby that you didn't want to keep, you'd put that baby in a clay pot and take the baby to a trash dump to die of exposure. Romans did this regularly. And so Paul is saying, I'm a clay pot, I'm nothing to look at. Don't look at the messenger, look at the message. And the Corinthians, of course, they're looking at the clay pot and they're saying, you're not a really good speaker. Do you know how bad Paul was? Paul, when Paul would speak regularly, people would fall asleep. He was dull. He was boring. Uh, Paul had some kind of physical feature about him that was hard to look at. Many historians will talk about that. Um, and so Paul, Paul didn't have that wow factor. And he's saying, yeah, I'm not, I don't have any wow factor to me because I want you to see that it's God's power. Because if I were awesome, you'd be talking about Paul and not Jesus. You'd be saying, hey, you gotta hear this guy from Tarsus, Paul, he's incredible. And Paul wants you to talk about, no, Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead, he's incredible. So 2 Corinthians 4 verses eight and nine. We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but won't give up. Hunted down, God never abandoned us. Knocked down, but we get up and keep going. Paul is saying, this is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling pressed. He had been in conflict with the Christians in this church in Corinth. And they were basically saying to him, you're a Luther, Paul. You can't speak worth a darn. You can't plan things. It's clear God isn't using you. You're a Luther. And he, he took that personally. It was a hard thing. And it broke his heart because he had given so much and sacrificed so much for these people in this church in Corinth. So he felt pressed. 
He felt perplexed. He felt these things deeply. And what Paul is saying is here is, I can't control what happens to me, but I can, I can choose how I respond to it. I love the way Dr. Tenney summarized it. There's wordplay in the Greek that you don't get in English, and Tenney kind of cleaned it up and Englishizes it wonderfully. Uh, Tenney says, the way you should read this is, I'm squeezed, not squashed, bewildered, but not befuddled, pursued, but not abandoned, knocked down, but not knocked out. Put that on the back of your car. <laughs> Squeezed, but not squashed. Bewildered, but not befuddled. Pursued, but not abandoned. Knocked down, but not knocked out. And he keeps going, verses 10 and following. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Paul is saying, you Corinthians can see the power of God in my life because I don't have the talent, the skills, I don't have the wow factor. The things that are happening are clearly because God is at work. It's not me, it's God is at work in me. It's not my ability, it's not my vision, it's not my talent, it's not my skills. And verse 12 there hints at the crux at it. We live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Paul's alluding to this glorious exchange, right? On Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Jesus died that we might live. It's humbling to admit that you're a clay pot. It's humbling to admit that you're a clay pot, that you're fragile, that you're transitory. It's humbling to admit that you're a vessel of weakness. But God's power is on display most in our weakness and not our power. It's God's power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's God's power that saves and delivers. It's God's power that changes families and cities and nations, not great strategic programming. Tim Savage puts it this way, um, but I wanna finish out with these verses from 2 Corinthians. We continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist said when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there'll be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. In other words, Paul could live and endure such hardships and he could sacrifice so much and he could endure so much because Paul was convinced that the way Jesus was raised from the dead was a promise and an indicator of what would happen for him and for anyone who believes. One of the things we affirm as Christians is the bodily resurrection of the dead. I don't know about you, but I am anticipating the day when I will get a body that won't betray me, that won't grow old, that won't succumb to disease. God made me an embodied creature, and the day is coming when he will make all things new. And the older I get, the more, the more that sounds pretty awesome, all right? Tim Savage puts it this way. He says, it is because Paul believes in a future resurrection of the dead that he is presently willing to carry about in his body the dying of Jesus. 
It is because he trusts in a future exaltation that he now submits to the condition of a slave. It's because he looks forward to a future heavenly life that he's willing to die daily. It's because he anticipates reigning with Christ in the future that he can speak so boldly in the present. Without faith in the future resurrection, Paul's suffering would not only be intolerable, but meaningless. He would, on his own admission, be a man most to be pitied. If you believe that the material world is all there is and there's no God, eventually this universe is gonna burn out and every memory of the human race gone forever. That's a, that's a heavy thing. And in the face of that, the empty grave says, no, no, no. What if God can do more through your weakness than through your strength? What if God can do more through your weakness than your strength. I know, if you're like me, you, you, what you wanna offer God is, hey God, I'm really good at this, take this. But God wants to work where you feel perplexed, where you feel harassed, where you are being knocked down. That's where God wants to work. What if the very thing you most want relief from is the place where you will see God at work the most? What if the very thing you won't most want relief from is where you will see God at work the most? Here's some takeaways from this passage. The first thing, we gotta get over ourselves. Paul said, look, it's not the clay pot. Quit looking at the clay pot. It's the message, not the clay jar. We gotta get over ourselves. Get over our past, our limitations, our excuses. So many of us were like, well, God can't use me. I've got this habit. I've, I, there's things in the past you don't know about. Just say, here I am. God will use you. God will do amazing things. Secondly, realize that you can't control what happens to you, but you can choose how you respond. This is that perplexed but not broken part of the passage. Um, my, my dad's mother, uh, the lady I called Grandma Vi, had rheumatoid arthritis. And by the time I was, say, sixth grade, seventh grade, she was confined to a wheelchair and a walker. Uh, her legs were deformed, her feet were deformed, her, I mean, she, her hands were all curled up. Uh, this was in the 70s and 80s before some killer surgeries that came down the pike. And I remember the, the day that my dad pinched my leg really hard, my kneecap really hard, and I was like, ah! And he goes, son, that's how your grandmother feels every day of her life all over her body. And do you know what? She was the most sweetest person that you would ever meet. When you came into the room, it was all about you. It wasn't about her. You never heard how she was hurting. You never heard how she was in pain. And then she lived off the interest of $30,000. That was all they had managed to save, okay? So that she lived off the interest and Social Security of $30,000. And you would go visit her and she would say, here, here, take some money you need some money, right? Grandma Vi, like talk about being weak and yet she wrote plays that churches did. There were all kinds of ways that God used her. She worked and she volunteered and served and led in children's ministry the lion's share of her life. And there are kids all over Indiana that grew up with Vi Vanderpool in Sunday school. Uh, so the other, the other example of that in my life more recently is a pastor friend named Jim. Jim was... Uh, has a uh, nerve disorder that's a lot of pain, and he's 
he had to leave the ministry. He had to quit teaching. A lot of times he's confined to bed. At one point he had a morphine pump installed because he was in so much pain. Um, and I would go sit with him at the foot of his bed because he couldn't get out of bed. And he would want to pray with me. And he would say things like, Max, isn't God wonderful? Isn't God just beautiful? Haven't, I, do you know how beautiful God is? And I'm like, Jim, you're in pain in bed, like you're killing me. No, no, he goes, if I had never gotten to this point in my life, I would have never known what it was to depend on God for everything. And I found that he's good, Max, I'm telling you, he's good. Like what is it that goes on in, in people like that? It's exactly what we read about in Paul. It's not limited to the first century. I wanna tell you, uh, first of all, if you feel like you don't need God, you may not need God dot, dot, dot today, all right? I would just add that qualifier. You may not need God today, but all of us are either heading into trouble, in trouble, or coming out of trouble. And I'm telling you, you'll hit a point in your life where you do need God. In this church right here, Generations Community Church is full of awkward introverts. We're, we, have, uh, we have anxiety issues. We have faced divorce, bankruptcy. We've lost friends. We've lost children. We're weak. We're weak. That's what we would say to you today if you're here for the first time. This is what Hebrews uh, puts it in Hebrews chapter 11. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to fight. And then Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, remember, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Those first Christians were not the people who had gone to Harvard. They weren't the people who graduated at the top of their class. They weren't necessarily the rich and the beautiful of the Roman Empire or the well-connected. They were the despised. They were the people that got rejected. They had a past. But by golly, everywhere they went in the Roman Empire, they were a game changer. They, remember the clay pots that held babies that people didn't want? They would go into those trash heaps and collect those children and bring them home and raise them as their own and give those kids rights of inheritance, just like their own biological children. It's where we get the concept of godparents from. Christians did that. Uh, they, they went, uh, a series of plagues swept throughout the Roman Empire in the 100s, especially the 180s. And families, because they were so scared to death, if, if grandma or mom or dad or, or brother or sister got the plague, they would take that person and put them out on the street and leave them to die. They were so scared. Guess who went and collected those people and cared for them until they died? Christians. If the reason Christianity took over the Roman Empire is not because a guy named Constantine made it the law. 
if Constantine hadn't converted one of his sons would, the trajectory of Christianity in the Roman Empire was, everybody had gotten to the point where they were like, listen, these people are nutty with some of the things they're saying about that Jesus rising from the dead, but I want them to be in charge of stuff. <laughs> like, they're awesome the way they love, the way they treat people. So again, if you came here today to be wowed, I just wanna say, I'm sorry. All we have to offer at Generations Community Church is our weakness. And I hope that maybe if you choose to stick around with us, what you'll see in our weakness is the amazing power of God. God can do some amazing things. Again, resurrection power only comes through crucifixion weakness.